Welcome to Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, this is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. We have a special show today uh, that's going to be on a national scale. We're dipping out of the endless controversies in Wisconsin to talk about the new administration and what role progressives can play in actually getting very strong uh, structural reform of the kind that would dramatically change our society, really reckon with with race, structural racism, the climate crisis, the depression facing working class Americans, all of those things. And we are uh, joined by two really deep national, both experts and organizers in this. Uh, they're both connected to People's Action, the uh, national network uh, federation, really, that uh, Citizen Action Wisconsin is part of. And we have George Gale, who is the executive director of People's Action. And we have Bree Carlson, who is the deputy director of People's Action. So welcome to the show, uh, George and Bree. Thanks, Robert. Hey, good to see you all. And I believe George has been on before, but this is Bree's first uh, appearance and hopefully not the last. <laughs> see if she'll come back. So and we want to use a launching point, and we'll put the link in the Battleground Wisconsin section of the Citizen Action Wisconsin website. Uh, but I did an article for Indies Times Magazine on progressive strategy in Biden's Washington, and it was not a focus on what Biden will do. It was more of a focus on what progressives need to do and what how we can be agents and what happens rather than simply pundits trying to guess or what he should do and what his administration ought to do and what's wrong with what they're doing to be active participants. And one of the things I say that I want to first get George and Bree's reactions to, and in this way, they can tell you a little bit about their background as well. And that is, it seems to me, the progressive movement uh, and its influence is stronger that's been since the 1960s. Uh, and that there have been a huge number of changes that have gone on. And both George and Bree from different places, different ge places geographically and different life histories, have been involved and played a major role in those developments. So I want to get both of their thoughts. And I'll just, this is an open round table, so either one of you can answer first. Uh, you know, what your background briefly in life story is in organizing and in the movement, and then... Uh, after that, uh, how, what you think the changes have been, what it has been, what it was, maybe when you started along the way, and what it is and what it could be, because I also argue that we have to change dramatically to achieve our full potential in this movement moment. But uh, uh, Bree, uh, looks like, uh, can you take a first cut at that? Yeah, maybe we can do a little bit at a time. I would say I started organizing in uh, 94, maybe, and I'm, I'm a little hard pressed to think of anything that hasn't changed about organizing since then. Mm. But some of some of it is what's changed in the world. I mean, uh, our understanding of targets, our understanding of bases that have the ability to wield power um, to to make change has has changed exponentially. The internet. Uh, I remember when I was teaching organizers, even in the early 2000s, I yelled at someone for using Facebook to fundraise because I thought she was talking about some group of people that were her college, you know, former college classmates. I just could not have appreciated the power of the internet to change what it meant to reach and influence people. Um, and I suppose that there's 
the ability to reach people that's opened up by the internet, but also the ways in which it makes it easy not to reach people the way that we used to. So there's less of an emphasis on rigorous and disciplined base building than there was when I started. Um, the, there's so much uh, decline of unions that union density decreasing has shifted, not just union organizing, but I think the understanding of organizing as a real way to make change in the world. So let me, I'm going to kick it to George and you're right. We should go in short chunks. That was a big question on my part. And that is, you know, Robert Reich, I, I cite this in the article said in his really excellent memoir of being locked in the Clinton administration's labor secretary, he didn't say it, you read it. There's almost no role of outside pressure influence. It's like he's on his own fighting, you know, Alan Greenspan and, and wall street and everything else. Did you feel like when you entered the movement that the movement had a lot of influence in, in high places like governor's offices and presidential administrations, or is that, has that changed a lot? Well, I, guess I can say that at least that I came from, uh, I, I would say another big changes. It seems to me that the, there, that when I started organizing, there was racial justice organizing and there was economic justice organizing. And our sense was they were born out of two different traditions and they were like just materially two different things and never the twain shall meet. Uh, and certainly we did not have, <clears throat> on the racial justice side, we did not have influence over decision makers or I would even say, you know, in the main over how regular people made meaning of the world. Our ability was to impact a specific issue in a specific geography. And it was, you know, with some some exceptions, it was limited to that. So it was a very localized, we're going to fix this problem in a community. Exactly. It was not contesting for power. That's, exactly. that's very helpful and I think useful for the audience to know. George, um, like your perspective, your your what you've how it's changed in your career in the career and, and and also obviously the question of influence then and now and along the way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I might have been more on the economic justice side of that, that dichotomy. Um, but I think like I started organizing in a soup kitchen in southern Indiana and pretty quickly got hooked up with kind of the Chicago organizing community and those you know long traditions, some of which, you know, definitely came out of Alinsky, but was bigger than that. And I think of that organizing, which was very neighborhood based. Um, it was an organizing that was designed to win the best thing possible in the existing political and ideological landscape. So this is the mayor, these are the aldermen, what can we win in this context? And I think probably among the many shifts has been an organizing that's more designed to shift or more seeking to shift the overall ideological and, and kind of political power context. Um, and I feel like that's happened in a big way over the last 10 years. And I got, within that, I think, a much sharper focus, if imperfect, around shaping worldview with race at the center of that. Um, thinking more long-term versus like, how do we win this thing, you know, that we might wanna win now, but what are the multiple steps we need to play? How do we move from playing checkers to chess? Uh, not that I would by any mean infer that we're playing chess yet. And, um, and then I think also the move to electoral politics, like when I was coming up as a younger organizer, really even not a young organizer a dozen years ago, most of the community organizing sector was either doing 501c3 GOTV work only or actually sitting out electoral politics. So I think these are like seismic shifts. And then just two other pieces, like you go back to 2010, like 
we were not in an era pre-2010 and really 2009, 2010 of social movements. Social movements were not popping off at the regularity that they are now. We live in, just have just moved through a decade of incredible social movements popping off left and right and then resurging when it seems like they may have passed. And I think like you look at the, just to get to the Biden administration, like the first series of executive orders show the power of social movements and organizing to set the context that governing is happening in. And within all of that, there are way more people that we are friends with, that we are of, um, uh, some of us that are going into this administration and having access and actually some, some real inside political power than, than would have been even dreamable 10 years ago. So we're not there, but I think it's like a, it's one of the most game-changing uh, decades for organizing. And later, I'd love to talk about the, the downsides of some of that. Oh, absolutely. We need to, we need to do that. Um, I wonder, uh, uh, Bree and George, it seems like the social movements, George, you talked about that, have, that are now rising up and at, at totally different terrain uh, than organizing 20, 30 years ago. Uh, that one of the formative ones, arguably the formative one, has been Black Lives Matter and everything around that. In other words, even before that term was coined. And it, it's a reaction to what was happening in the 70s and 80s, the creation of mass incarceration and what amounts to a very abnormal situation historically in the United States and globally as far as the number of people incarcerated, the incredible militarization of marginalized communities, especially black and brown community. Uh, uh, Bree, do you really feel like uh, that that, and you see it this year with both nationally and the, in, in, in Brianna Taylor and George Floyd and, and others, they're, they're, we, we, we know the names, that's part of the movement, right? And then here, Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, that, that is, that that's been part of the that that is that has created a whole movement beyond even just the question of police feeling like that like they can summarily execute uh, black men and women in many contexts. Yeah, oh, without without question, um, I think there's there's sort of a, a rise in social movement that I would say comes a lot further back with Occupy, um, and then the movement for Black Lives and the uprisings that happened in 2015 with Michael Brown and the progression into now, I think there's something about the co the combination of um, the broader collapse of systems in our society that has led people both, led them to feel a little bit desperate, but also um, like the solutions must be bolder combined with the ability to see what happened to George Floyd um, in a different way. People who didn't react to prior videos of police executions saw this differently. So we have to take a quick break. Uh, you have listened to Battleground Wisconsin. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, this is Robert Craig uh, of Citizen Action Wisconsin. We are having a big national level conversation about the progressive movement and its power and what it can do in the Biden administration with George Gale, the executive director of People's Action, and Bree Carlson, the deputy director of People's Action. And so we were just reflecting not only in the first segment on the dramatic change in the power of the movement and the way it operates um, over the last 20, 30 years, uh, but we were just discussing with Bree the incredible influence of uh, 
Black Lives Matter and the the, the, the real organic movement to a racial justice reckoning. And that is an example, really, of a very organic movement. I mean, Black Lives Matter is not a structured organization, deliberately, right? And, you know, one of the analyses of that kind of organic movement and a more localized kind that got national attention was Occupy Wall Street. And certainly the, uh, the, the Wisconsin, that the world's rights protests, is that it is incredibly powerful in agenda setting and putting a lot of new people in motion. But unless it is taken on by long-term institutions like organizing groups, organized labor, uh, you'll, you'll get like what you got in the workers' rights protests or um, eventually or in um, Occupy Wall Street, it, it will dissipate. It has to eventually be connected in, in, some, in, in structures and institutions. So I wonder... Are we doing a better job? And that's not the only movement, the immigration movement, right? I think a huge movement around the way that the Great Recession was handled, bailing out the banks, not the people, leaving the victims worse off in a very racially unequitable way. There's a lot of different, and the women, women led the resistance, right, uh, to Trump. It was a, So there's a whole women's movement going on here at the same time. Are we getting better at working with social movements because we're working at the higher level George talked about in the last segment and capturing the energy, capturing uh, leaders and activists, some of them, the ones that want to be involved or members, if, if you become member organization, so we don't lose that energy and we, and we, and we build towards structural reform because I think you have, to, it's a long game to get structural reform, I think. And so uh, you, you can't do it just in one organic movement, no matter how powerful. I think we, I mean, one thing I would say is I feel like when you think about Black Lives Matter and, and the movement for Black Lives, like very trained, developed people. Uh, I mean, Alicia Garza is, is, may have been an organic moment, but is a very trained thinker and organizer. Um, the people that are you know behind the movement for Black Lives are very sophisticated, thoughtful, and also experienced organizers and movement people. And, and I think also a set of people that have studied what didn't kind of come to fruition out of the movements of, the, of this decade that didn't kind of really actually deliver that much in terms of policy. And so I, I remember in some of the organizing kind of coming and, and the messaging and the strategy coming out of the moments after George Floyd was murdered and the uprisings happened, which again, we're, we're fairly organic. Um, I was like, this is next level. This is more sophisticated. This shows learning from what we didn't get right in these other things. So I would say in that way, um, we're developing and we're getting better. And I, but I also think a very specific set of people, um, we're getting better. And, um, and I would just say, I think now you're, I think we're just scratching the surface. And I put all of this in the context of we are like, we're in this, we're like pounding on the door of finally becoming an America that is reckoned with and reconciled with so many of the contradictions between our founding words and then the horrific acts that followed. And like, and that's going to be messy and ugly as hell. Like there's just, it's going to be beautiful. I mean, I, I was on, when I go to CNN, I see like the front news is like Biden to rush printing of Harriet Tubman bills. And then like 10 years ago, I would have thought that was fake news. Like, I'm like, now that is like, that, sh that shit is happening all the time. So I think we're like, we're progressing. And uh, yeah, I feel like in that way, we're learning a lot and we're getting better. I totally agree. I think it's, but I'd say it's a yes and no. Yes, we are getting better in, um, figuring out how to 
how to occupy multiple lanes, um, figuring out the best way to support and encourage organic movement to stay present, to articulate demands, um, and to to create momentum and hope that sustains it for, for people who are organically coming to the streets, while at the same time doing the institutional organizing that actually moves an agenda in sync with what is happening on the streets. You know, maybe not completely in pace, but uh, side by side so that people are fed by seeing movement and change as a result of their taking to the streets rather than just taking to the streets um, and and losing losing hope and losing energy. And that's tough. And that's a great point, Brie. And, and George, your point about a lot of movement trained people being part in generating social movement, so it's not a strict separation, is really important to understand. And the more trained people we have, the more they're involved in movements. A lot of uh, Black Lives Matter came out of events like uh, Ferguson, like, uh, the, like the murder of Trevon Martin, you know, so there were, but there were trained organizers coming out of structured organizations to go and help shape that, right? But then there was a lot of new people who just came to the streets, right? And that was an opportunity. It seems like, uh, Bree, what you said is really important. That is, how do you capture the energy and show hope? not dissipate it because the opposite is there's like nothing to be changed. I'm going to become cynical. I'm not going to use my democracy, which is one of the reasons you, you have people not voting uh, because they don't see a, a stake, right? And it seems like you really have a problem. This gets to us progressives, progressive wing of the party, where we're still a minority, but we're becoming stronger and stronger, could become a majority, but have to work with establishment Democrats because neither dominates the party. That's part of what I argue in the article, that the tendency of establishment Democrats and even progressives who are more in the system or been there a while is to take something like defund the police and say, it doesn't work. It doesn't pull well. It's bad for us. It, it, it alleging it hurt elections. And therefore, we can't talk about it, but not considering you better replace it with something you can do or you're actually dissipating all that energy and disappointing all of that, that multiracial outpouring on the street. Is that what you were kind of getting at here? So then we have an obligation to figure that out so that we don't lose that. What could be more important than people actually trying to take their own government influence it? Isn't that supposed to be what America's about and we're going to disappoint them and say, oh, it doesn't pull well, go away. Absolutely. Yeah, when I said yes and no, I think the, the growing pain we have is that we're, we're successful beyond, I think, many of our imaginations and the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter is probably some of the most sophisticating organizing, sophisticated organizing at time. You know, the constant pressure from more moderate uh, parts of the left to lose and walk away from demands like, like defund the police is a perfect example of the short-sightedness of, uh, of being entirely stuck in a co-governance model. We're trying to figure out a way to hold as a progressive left the ability to be the outside force and the inside force. And I think as George said earlier, that's just mm -hmm. gonna be But the really brilliant nuanced way that the demand to defund, defund police has captured the imagination of people, has kept momentum and, uh, and anger uh, alive in this fight has been critical, while at the same time, it's actually opened up a whole new avenue of what kind of change is possible. Because what I think is the biggest difference with, with how we responded to George Floyd is that the 
the common conversation. The conversation, the dominant conversation has been about systems and not how to police for, ind- well, for lack of a better word, how to control bad actors in the police force. It's, you know, it's right. changed and it has people talking about what does it mean to be safe? And the space that that opens up for real structural change is, you know, it's limitless. Yeah, because, and I want to kick this to George, that's very rich. It's not structural to say, uh, we'll keep everything as we have it, but we just won't have the summary, ex- summary execution, summary execution of, of black men and women in certain situations by police. It'd be like saying, keep Jim Crow, get rid of the lynchings. It's not structural reform, right? And in fact, that stands in for all the inequality. It's not even understanding that people are complaining about everything. And this is just kind of the, not only the spark, but the clear example that black lives don't matter. But the fact they don't have good, have lesser schools, have make less money, are much more likely to be poor, have fewer life prospects. That's part of black lives matter, not mattering as well. But George, uh, your thoughts on this question? Well, yeah, going back to the question on kind of how do you sustain the, the movement energy? I feel like the old organizing adage of like winning matters, we got to win stuff. Like that applies to movements too. And I think sometimes, you know, as movements pop off, the focus is on the big structural transformation that we're looking for. And like, we are going for that or nothing. And that is just, that's just not sharp. Like it's like the same as the like political revolution or bust theory. Like we are going to somehow take over in one fell swoop and pass all the whole enchiladas that we want. Like there's just, having just read these truths, this 750 page book on American history, like that just doesn't happen very much. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but I I think we should at least have a backup plan. So I think we've got to figure out when these movement moments pop off, like how are we going to win some stuff locally that really shows up in people's lives and people are like, wait, engaging in social movements as engaging in organizing matters. And I'm going to stay in this longer. But if people are only sold on some big, dreamy, transformative demand. But of course, we're not going to be able to win in the next six months. We're going to have a lot of disappointed people. Yeah, that is a really good point. Now, I'll pick it up at, at the other side. We're about to get to a break. And that is, how do we hold on to the big vision, which motivated people, brought them in the first place, while understanding how much of it we could achieve now, not just at the national level, but George pointed out, you know, local victories related to it as steps in a road. And that that's something where the movement need that's something where I say, believe the movement needs to evolve because we haven't quite figured out all that muscle, right? And therefore that tends to divide us. So with that, we're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig at Citizen Action Wisconsin. We're having a big national strategy discussion about the, the, the emergence of a powerful progressive movement and the new Biden administration and what is possible and how progressives can make it happen. And uh, George Gale is the um, uh, executive director of People's Action and Bree Carlson is the deputy director. And that's a national federation of state organizing groups and local organizing groups like Citizen Action Wisconsin here in Wisconsin. We are the Wisconsin affiliate. And so we were talking about, George brought up the question, if you, it's new. Bree said earlier that it used to be very local fights around this problem, like this toxic waste dump or, or, the, or this uh, uh, neighborhood that has no hospital or no grocery store, right? And now it's, you know, massive reform 
right? Uh, aspirational reform. And George brought up the question of how we move along the possible, because we don't have all the power now, but we need to build towards it while keeping the aspiration and not going home or not cracking up our unity because we didn't get the whole thing all at once, which rarely happens in American history. George cited reading. There are lots of 800-page books on American history George could have been reading. But uh, yeah, you don't see that happen. And even the big things where we think it happened, it actually had Brown versus Board of Education happened in a whole bunch of incremental legal cases for 30 years. Okay, So it was not actually all at once, though it may seem so. Same with gay marriage uh, becoming, you know, a right, right, for, for folks. That didn't actually all happen at once, though it felt like that, because there was one culminating victory. And it's sort of like this in the 1830s, abolishing slavery was a hopeless dream. How did they make progress towards it uh, while keeping the dream that, of course, we had to abolish the whole system, the big structural reform? And I think, and Bree and George, you could react to this, we don't have right now in the movement as a way to make that decision. And I'll give a, an obvious example. I don't think, and we can disagree, that uh, Medicare for all is achievable, something of that reform in one bill. And it's certainly not when the president doesn't want it. And you have a 50-50 uh, Senate that is not a progressive majority and a very close uh, House where the progressives are larger than ever before, about only about 43% by my measure of even the House Democrats, but they can get a lot, uh, but they can't get that even if they were unified for it. Now, a friend of ours, Michael Lighty, uh, and I, well, I like Michael a lot, uh, who's a big advocate for Medicare for All, had an article in In These Times magazine, the same magazine mine is in, a short one that said how we can med Medicare for All, which I turned to excitedly because I want to know how to win it right now. And my, I'm sure Michael could respond when I next talk to him. But I said, really, I, what I read uh, was that we have to, and it could have been moral necessity, not that there was a way. And I'm still, I, I, so I still remain not thinking there's a way, but we could make huge chunk steps towards it. And Biden is moving that direction in his talks with Bernie Sanders. So that a major thing that we need a way to decide what the steps are, Bree. Yeah, you know, I, you're right that we as the whole progressive left are not prepared yet, but I think we've been moving in that direction because uh, the, the trick is that we don't need to stop saying Medicare for all is what we need. It is what we need. We don't need to stop saying that we need racial equity in every institution because it is what we need. The thing we have to understand is what are the structural reform steps that actually build toward that end and never lose sight of all of the times we got that wrong. Uh, I started organizing, I said in the 90s, but it was in Reno, Nevada. We had two hate crimes that sort of led to me winning the first structural reform I've, I ever won, which was um, in response to the murder of a black man and the murder of a gay man uh, that were unquestionably hate crimes, we were able to get the legislature to unanimously pass a penalty enhancement for hate crimes. It is so hard to know that that victory was important and hard won and changed a lot of things, but it is also what contributed to current mass incarceration. It is also what's been weaponized against my community. I think what we know now is that it's not that we don't compromise and it's not that we don't take the smaller steps. It's that we have to know before we go in the room which smaller steps actually move us to what we want and which smaller steps may feel good right now, but will take us back in the larger fight. 
And George, uh, if you have, if you want to reflect more on that, that'd be great. But I also think there's two issues. There's how we decide, but how we build more power because we don't have enough. There's a raw power issue and a, stra- a shared strategy issue. And on the front end, what's the bottom line before you go into the room, so to speak, as Bree said. And that that uh, it, that really fits in with a lot of what you talked about. Uh, what you what you're doing right now is trying to build. A, a multiracial rural working class program because we're also not talking to enough people. We're we're too we're too centered in in cities and not in a lot of the terrain that determines power in the country. So, but also George, like how we decide, but then maybe also the power question. So we could, we really should talk about your all of your deep thinking about rural organizing. Yeah, um, yeah, to kind of yeah. Let's see. Before we can even agree, I think we have to build a movement in a sector that is able to think about the fact that we have we want to have a north star structural transformation that we're shooting for which i would say the younger generation of organizers than me is much better at than we were when i was coming up so that's a breakthrough that's good um but that actually understands that chances are we're not going to pick it all off at once so it's very developed and trained around figuring out what is the way we get 10 million more people covered by medicare and like, or what is this, you know, structural stepping stone, as Bree said, that gets us there. Then we can start to think about how to organize agreement. But I was taught you never have any more power in the negotiating room than you have outside of it. You can't just act tougher and, and yell a lot and win a bunch more. So I think um, we, I would just say, like, I, I believe in like facing the brutal facts but with the certainty that we will succeed. And so you want to face the brutal facts is that the progressive sector is in touch with a tiny portion of low-income and working-class people compared to what we need to be. And I would say that is the case in cities and suburbs and in rural communities. And that could be in the case of deep organizing, more broad-based organizing, and even through media. And if we do not get on top of that, I think the next 20 years are going to be a tough road to host. We have to rebuild serious organizations that are able to do broad-based and deep-based organizing serious new media that can reach people. And yeah, without question, you go to, to rural communities, there are 60 million people live in rural communities in this country. Like, and much of the left has said, like, we'll write that part of the country off and just give that to the right. And we're going to win through some other means. And like, I would never write off 60 million people in that much geography in battle with, with what is clearly like serious opposition. Um, and President, just from an electoral perspective, President Obama won 43% of the rural vote. Secretary Clinton won 30%. In the states that Biden moved that up, those are states he brought into the win column that helped him become president of the United States. And then in other states where that didn't happen, um, and in many cases went backwards, the losses were worse than 2016. So I think in terms of thinking about rural in the context of a progressive strategy, we both could do a lot better. And I'll be honest, I think we've not hit bottom. If we continue to retreat, we could be looking at like 80 to 20 numbers and it's going to be really hard to build statewide governing power. It's certainly going to be hard to build control of the Senate if we write off that many people. So I think we've got to invest both in an urban, suburban, and rural organizing strategy. And I, Wisconsin, I believe it was a 2% increase for Biden on preference in rural and also in the smallest metro areas, really small towns. But I believe one of the states you're referring to is Ohio, where we lost ground. We didn't win Ohio, but there are others. I mean, George is very in touch with the terrain. Those are two great examples. Yeah. Yeah. So 
And it seems like part of we, and that where this also leads is we have to know the terrain outside. We've been talking about the terrain within the progressive movement. But it seems like the rise of the progressive wing of the party, which has been fueled by this movement, by both Bernie Sanders campaigns, frankly, by incredible this last uh, uh, presidential primary cycle was amazing. And so were some of these contested uh, Senate and House races uh, where there was a really robust progressive wing winning races, and you had to choose a lane, the pundit said, which was never true before. The establishment Democrat could just claim to be all things to all people. That ended. You had to choose. And that's huge, but it's changed the establishment Democrats. I think it's one of the reasons Biden has moved left, because he's read the tea leaves about power. And so there's a different uh, partner. But then us together, the moderate establishment Democrats, and the uh, and and progressive Democrats and the whole range. It's a huge range. A lot of those progressive Democrats, quote unquote, aren't as progressive as say the three of us are. Um, that we're up against this unified right wing, purified movement, more than proto fascist now, unfortunately, with the events that we have seen in the last in the last few months and this year. And so we have to somehow unite. And uh, and in order to even do a, uh, hold off, you know, the barbarians at the gate, so to speak. So there's that problem. And I, we're going to run out of time. So I'll just frame it up. And then George and Bree can answer when we get to the other side. And that is we have income concentration creating the most powerful plutocracy in American history makes the Gilded Age late 19th century one. They look like pikers and they have immense power. They have a huge, we didn't have this in the 1930s, advertising apparatus, political apparatus, deregulated elections, PR apparatus, and huge minions of people who they basically employ and hire and are on the revolving door. And they not only have bought off the entire Republican Party, they are part of the base, a big part of them, of the establishment Democrats. And we have to cope with that and replace them in some way with people power. And how do we do that and get the structural reform that people are demanding and need? So with that big question, and there's no way to answer it all in one segment, uh, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And we are joined by George Gale, the Executive Director of People's Action and Bree Carlson, the Deputy Director of People's Action, a national federation of groups like Citizen Action Wisconsin. We're one of the many members of it across the country. And we're talking about progressive strategy. And we've gotten to an unfairly big question that I'm going to uh, put to George and Bree. And maybe they can, they can, of course, ask me questions back if, because it's an unfair question. And that is, uh, you have with income concentration that income inequality leads to power inequality and there's there's more power in the very richest people and the richest corporations and you know the end of any trust law the, the build uh, finance capitals dominance it's all part of it but they are not only completely own the uh more than proto-fascist republican party but they also are a major funding source and ally source shadow partners of establishment democrats and we're in a Force partnership, which we have to have with them in order to hold power. We movement progressives. So, with that, it seems like George, at your question about how we build more power and talk to more people, is critical. I think you, in in one magazine, called it nuts not to talk to 
uh, you know, was it 60 million uh, uh, low income people uh, because they're not they don't fit in the same categories that progressives usually organize around. But then we have to we have to have more power and a strategy because only through, through unprecedented organization of people could we overcome the power against us. I was just I, I wanted to speak a little bit to both problems. I, mean, I think one of the things that we have to learn uh, now as a movement who's got considerably more power than we've had and considerably more opportunity than we've had in, as you said, Robert, decades, is you know, when you've organized people around big transformational visionary change, it becomes a little bit more complicated to figure out who's actually the enemy, who's the opposition. And it seems like the tendency is to say anybody who doesn't say right now, Medicare for all, right now, a home's guarantee, right now, we're saving the planet and, and you know, irrespective of what that costs in terms of jobs in this moment. Um, and, and we can't afford that. It's sort of, it's, uh, we're getting a little bit of a delusion of grandeur and thinking that we have as many people with us as we need because we have more people than we used to. Our job is to bring everybody along who's hurt by the systems we're trying to change. And that means that we can't afford to have the purity tests that seem to be coming into place. We have to be serious about talking to people as if there's nothing wrong with them that they didn't walk into the door already agreeing with us and that they're part of the, the, the team, the broader base that we have to build in order to take the finish line when we're dealing with the disproportionate power that concentrated wealth has produced among a very small number of people. It seems like that's crucial. That's a really good point, Bree. But the purity tests come from somewhere, thinking about as an organizer, people being disappointed, people being lied to by politicians. So creating a faith that we really are moving in the right direction and not just putting people off is important because we have such degraded communication because it's propagandocracy. George, I mean, that seems like part of the problem to me here. And the purity tests are not helpful, but they exist for a reason. They're understandable to, uh, to some degree. If you think about why people are so sure, of it, so afraid of being taken advantage of or lied to or sold out. Yeah, I think part of what I hear and also what Bree's saying is like goes back to the earlier question around around money. And I think you're starting to see a Democratic Party that um, is, you know, largely uh, very well to do and economically ascending white urban folks. Um, and, uh, you know, and a high percentage of people of color voters. And I think within there, I, I have questions around, again, to beat fascism, we'll take who we need. Um, but then I have questions of how many people in that ascending white urban group, and I think there are some that do, but really want to fundamentally restructure how the economy works, um, who really want to pay more in taxes, who really want to regulate finance, who really want to break up multinationals that are certainly you know, like some of the worst antitrust problems we've ever had. Um, that is a, I don't, I don't think most people want that. And so you're going to see that in the governing agenda of the Democratic Party, as long as that's the case. And so just within the question of whiteness, I often think we're organizing the wrong white people. So there are, uh, I think of us as having four white economies in the U.S., the, you know, 1% largely what I would call the still ascending people who still benefit from capitalism and from racism. Um, as well as what I would call the fallen, what many people would call the white working class, who, you know, for many years, you know, benefited to some degree from capitalism and racism, uh, but also didn't really build enough durable wealth to withstand the kind of fall from grace that they've experienced over the last 40 years. And then the forgotten, which is the 18 million white folks that live in poverty, 
of which the progressive sector invests almost zero in trying to bring into our coalition. And then we're surprised that they aren't part of our coalition. So I think we have to think about organizing in this way. And within the whole question of legibility and purity tests, it's like, it's not that our ideas are the wrong ideas. We just have to actually know what community we're in, what meeting we're in, what country we're in, and figure out how to talk to people about those ideas. Um, and I don't think right now, a lot of times with a lot of our language, I, I'm, I often wonder who it's for, because like I went to college and I don't understand it. Like, so I'm like, I don't know why we have, we've decided to be eligible to most people, but I think it is actually a path to building a small base. And if our main like kind of point of leverage is that the Republicans are so crazy, like that's only going to last for us for so long. And some days I think that's the only thing holding it together. You know, and I love what you say generally, you said it right now about speaking to people in their own language, in their own communities, which is the fundamental of organizing. I mean, there's just a lot, if you go to Facebook or go to a lot of left meetings, there's this whole new nomenclature that is not accessible, is a foreign language almost. And it, and and when we have, you hire and organize some college campuses, they come pre-programmed with that from, you know, very well-intended uh, professors who, who, who do a lot of great work. I'm a recovering academic, so I'm not saying they don't do great work, but I'm saying we need to translate that to the lives of average people. So it seems like, uh, and Fox News and those sources just take advantage and make fun of us and make us be ridiculous and threatening, right? By, and that's what their daddy politics and political correctness vignettes all the time are, are about, right? So there is all of that. Um, Bree, did you have a perspective on, you know, just how we talk to people? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the trouble with the purity test. Right? We can apply it and apply it to decision makers um, because people have been let down. But it's been my experience, actually, what produces the trust that moves people to stay with you and believe in the change long term is winning things. Mm -hmm. And you know, if, if we're applying a purity test that excludes the vast majority of the people who currently make decisions, we will fail to win what we need to win. It, it just goes without saying. And it is real difficult to apply that to those folks and not take it into the relationships that we're building with folks in community. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Republicans are acting crazy. There are a lot of Republicans who are looking for a new political home that should be with us. Mm -hmm. How we talk to people has to be about what we want commonly to build and has to be about building long-term expansive change for them, not just deciding at the door whether or not they can be with us, whether or not they're one of the bad guys who should be dismissed. Let me ask you, because we only have a couple minutes left here, get your reaction to this. Um, Ibram X. Kendi, the author of How to Be an Any Racist, uh, Ian Henny Lopez, Dog Whistle Politics, and, uh, and, and Merge Left, actually argue against the idea, this is on anti-racism in particular, or racial justice, uh, say that we, we need to stop saying that most white people will lose things by getting racial equality, that that you might feel that way because they've gotten unfair advantages. All white people in this country are privileged at some level, right? Uh, but in reality, the, the power is so concentrated the, and the economic benefits of this country, it's actually not, not even true. And it's the opposite. The elite 
the plutocracy is gaining and we're all losing. And we need to make that common good argument by a different way, that is race and class together is the way Henny Lopez puts it. Uh, do you think that's the right kind of path to create a majority movement? I know damn well it is actually. Uh, the secret sauce of American capitalism is racism. The economic injustice that we experience in this country, I promise you is impossible if not for racism. It is the thing that makes white people believe that their self-interest is different than people of color. So while we have disproportionate poverty in communities of color, we have more poor white people and more white poverty that comes from supporting policies that ensure economic inequality. It's a, it's a complete setup and the best thing that we can do is to talk about them together. And I think what we have done wrong in the past in the way that we dealt with it isn't just that we didn't talk about them together, it's that we tried to take race out of it in the conversation. That we think that to say that everybody will benefit means don't talk about people of color and don't talk about the explicit targeting of people of color and that's wrong. George, we have less than a minute. I'll give you the last word. I'm glad Bree said that. She's been training people yeah. for way longer than it was popular. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think what Bree said is right is, you know, just to echo it, like when we've dodged race, which I think much of the Democratic Party infrastructure has either dodged race or employed dog whistle politics over the last 40 years. Um, in the dog whistle politics thing, we've actually helped um, kind of validate the rights argument and racism. And then in the dodging it, we've left a vacuum for others to inform how people think about it. And here we are. And I can play Fareed Zakaria here and say you can read more on our website. And by reading my article, I always put points people to his latest op-ed. And uh, it, it's in the Battleground Wisconsin section of our website at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And next week, we will be back to topical Wisconsin problems and the right, such as apparently they've just uh, uh, overturned the mask mandate yet again, the Republican uh, legislature. So we'll be back to all those great topics and, and progressive organizing here next week. But until then, you've been listening to Battleground Wisconsin. And thank you to Bree Carlson and George Gale for joining us. <laughs>